try and decide whether to sit or stand, um, but I think I've sat long enough, um, and so have all of you. I have been a Yeshiva College graduate, it's been 40 years since I've been back, uh, and realized the chairs are just as hard as they were years ago during organic chemistry. Um, uh, just a quick anecdote, I was walking to shul yesterday and a friend was walking along with me and said, I, I see you're speaking at YU tomorrow on this ADHD. You know, when we were young, it didn't exist. And so I think one of the things that Bishwab and I are going to be doing today is talking about the facts. What is it? How is it diagnosed? How does it present itself? And then asking some very important questions. Um, is the um, number of kids, adolescents, and adults that we diagnose rising? Um, are we treating what is an environmental condition to the boob tube of the 50s and 60s as just a 20th century disorder? And what's the role of medicine? And what's the role of medicine not only for kids and adults with ADHD, but is there a role for medicine outside of that population? Um, we have our uh, uh, email addresses. If you'd like, send us an email. We'll be to send you a copy of, of, of the slides. It's one slide deck between us. I'll be speaking for a few minutes, and then Schwa will be, and then I'll be coming back, and then we'll be hopefully answering lots of questions or discussing lots of issues. So the history of, of uh, ADHD is not new. It goes back uh, for a couple of centuries, at least from a medical point of view. Um, the first slide is an inquiry into nature and origin of mental derangement. It's published in the 1700s and it describes people walking up and down the room, slight noise and the same, shutting the door suddenly, all destroyed constant attention to such patients. Neither the terrorists of the rod nor the indulgence of any kind of treaty can cause them to give their attention to them. So, this is a, a description in the 1700s of folks, children, adults, who had trouble paying attention. In the 1800s, uh, Heinrich Hartmann, a, a psychiatrist who worked a local uh, asylum for children and adults with a variety of disorders, decided to treat his children to poetry, if you will, and stories based upon the folks he saw. And this is a very famous uh, series of books called Fidgety Phil. Uh, and let me see if Phil can be a little gentleman, but he swings back and forth and tilts up his chair just like a rocking horse. So he's a youngster who can't sit still. And then in 1902, George Still, the father of pediatrics in uh, Great Britain, publishes a series of articles in The Lancet. Um, and he describes 43 children who had serious problems with sustained attention and self-regulation at quite a normal incapacity for sustained attention. And so this is a story that goes back, certainly, for prior to TV, prior to our modern age, prior to multitask. So what is it? How do we define it? There are two main components for ADHD. One is the component of inattention, and the other is impulsiveness and hyperactivity. So this is a list of some of the symptoms of inattention. Careless mistakes, easily distracted, forgetful. I'd like to show of hands for anyone who's never been careless. <laughs> Anybody who's never been distracted. 
anybody who's ever lost something at least. So the important thing is, these are symptoms, if you will, these are behaviors that occur in everybody. The most important factor that we need to kind of add to this kind of list is frequency and impairment. These are pervasive symptoms. The other component is hyperactivity, being fidgety, being unable to sit still, talking uh, before somebody else completes a sentence, uh, if the kid's not raising their hand, blurting out answers. Um, again, frequency and impairment are critical. Um, we often diagnose two subtypes, a subtype that's called an inattentive subtype, and then the subtype that's more of a combined subtype. In preschoolers, we often talk about the hyperactive component uh, as the main Have I pressed the wrong button? Okay. Okay, sorry. Um, for those of you who missed the first few minutes, um, it's because your Adderall wasn't working. Um, there are several developmental trends that I want you to be aware of. First, uh, preschoolers are not asked to pay attention, so we're not going to see attentional issues, but we're going to see more hyperactive impulsive issues. By the time we reach adulthood, we tend not to show our hyperactivity. We're not walking up and down, we're not moving around, we may be sitting still with an internal sense of restlessness. Um, we may have an internal, we may do some impulsive things, but mostly it's the distractibility. It's the sitting in the classroom and daydreaming. It's the person who's uh, a lawyer but really can't get their uh, boring, dull briefs done because they're easily distracted. Um, one of the most important components to talk about is one, Unfortunately, in this world, when you have one problem, it doesn't mean you're safe from other problems. And about 50% of kids with ADHD also have some other issue, whether it's anxiety, whether it's conduct symptoms. Uh, sorry, I must be. Somebody call out if I uh, if there's a slide moves. Um, or, or depression. So depression and ADHD can go together. So let's talk about making the assessment. This is a clinical diagnosis. Um, that means no blood tests, no brain scans. Um, this is a disorder of the brain, but I don't have people lining up and saying, sure, take a biopsy of my brain. But there are lots of disorders in this world that are clinical disorders. Migraine headaches, um, back pain, even things like seizures. Well, seizure epilepsy can be diagnosed with an EEG, a, a, a brain wave test, um, many times um, the brain test is negative even though the symptoms are clear. The same thing here. We, in making this diagnosis, are detectives. We want to ask questions. We want to ask questions from as many people as possible. So we want to talk to the family. We want to talk to parents. If there's a housekeeper or a nanny, we want to talk to them. We want to talk to teachers, we want to talk to last year's teacher, we want to talk to this year's teacher. The more information we gather, the better. Because we also want to exclude other reasons for not paying attention. I'm sitting in the audience, 
knowing that I'm the next speaker and, anxious, and anxiously worrying about what am I going to say and how am I going to say it, how am I going to be as, as, as good as the last speaker, I'm not paying attention. But it's not because I'm simply daydreaming, it's because I'm too anxious. Or the adolescent who's depressed um, and really is all, all their being is thinking inwardly, that's not a good issue. So we have to rule out a whole host of things before we go ahead and make that happen. This is a disorder that is quite impairing in multiple ways. First, kids and adults who have ADHD um, have more accents, um, uh, more injuries, more um, uh, business emergency. Uh, kids have poor school performance, they have lower scores on tests, they do poorly socially, they have poor social skills, they have difficulty maintaining friends. Um, when younger, they may be seen as the class clown, but as they get older, kids want to avoid them. Um, they have increased conflict with their family, um, with their parents, um, and they have low self-esteem because what they're being told is, you can do this if you try. So that means you must be lazy. When I hear the word, kid is lazy, that's a warning sign. Because kids don't want to be lazy. Kids want to, want to do things that will make their parents proud and make themselves feel good. And so if they're not doing it, the question is why. Is it, what, what, what's going on? Is it a learning issue? Is it ADHD? Is it something else? Those are important things. The problem is that kids don't outgrow it. And so what we know about adults <coughs> is that they complete a few years of education. Um, they are more likely to be unemployed or underemployed. They have more conflicts with spouses and problems with marital relationships. They are more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. Because they suffered school failure, because they've had problems socially, um, they have worse driving records. So these are folks who you know, rack up speeding tickets, uh, have lots of accidents, and they have increased deference and increased success. That's wonderful. Maybe I'll run the other way. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about one aspect of ideology. This is ones and families. So if I'm a child with ADHD, there's a chance, 15% chance, but my mom, or 30% chance my dad has ADHD. If I'm a parent with ADHD, there's about 20 or 40% chance that I'll have a child with ADHD. Um, we believe that this is a, a gene. Um, that probably has to do with the dopamine uh, neurotransmitter. And what we know is that kids who have never been treated for ADHD symptoms, with any kind of medication or anything else, that their brains are smaller and delayed developmentally. Um, so this is something that has got a biological origin. And that's not to say that everything in biology in all spheres of medical care and illness, there's a genetic, biological, and environmental component. I'm going to turn it over now to Dr. Schwab to uh, take over the next few slides. I'll be back. <laughs> um, thank you very much. I also want to thank, um, first of all, I want to thank the Medical Ethics Society for uh, inviting me to join here and, uh, and, and, and to really put me on, on the, in a day of uh, presenters who have so many credentials and are you know, so accomplished in the field, and particularly to be on a panel with Dr. Hirsch. As you heard earlier, I was a trainee back in the day at the Child Study Center, and Dr. Hirsch was one of my mentors. So it's really an honor to be here. Um, 
So I spend a lot of time explaining ADHD to kids, to their parents, and to teachers, um, both in my role as the assistant head of a school for kids with learning disabilities. As it happens, the overlap between language-based learning disabilities, which is what the Sheffa School addresses, and ADHD, if you look in the epidemiological literature, is about 50%. So we certainly have our fair share of kids with ADHD. Um, and my clinical practice is also full of them. In fact, any, any mental health professional working with kids, essentially, your, your practice is filled with these kids. These are not the quiet kids, typically. A few of them are. Most of them are not the quiet kids who go under the radar. The depressed adolescent, who maybe people don't believe really has a problem. These kids are driving their parents and their teachers nuts. And so they often get referred for treatment because they're, you know, the adults in their lives, the ones who are really motivated for them to seek treatment, are really struggling. So what, I, what, um, what uh, Dr. Hirsch really described was what the DSM, what our diagnostic manual describes as the symptoms of ADHD, and that's how we define it clinically. What really helps me to explain to, to families what they're looking at is to look under, to, under those, um, you know, there's a historical system to how the diagnostic manual is written. What are the underlying kind of psychological processes that I can explain? And, for, and, and I think it really helps to, from those basic, basic understandings of what we think is going on for most kids with ADHD, it's very helpful to understand then therefore what we do about it. Um, and so this is, I, want, I, I rely heavily on uh, Dr. Russell Barkley, um, who's if not the most and perhaps one of the most prominent researchers of, of ADHD in, the, in, the, in our lifetime, um, who's really, I, I really base my, my description on how he describes the disorder. So what is it? So he, you know, this is a term that he uses, self-regulation deficit disorder. It's not, attention's a sideshow in a way. I mean, it's certainly one of the impairing parts of it, but attention's not the main thing going on. His key element here is that there's a problem with self-regulation, which he defines this way, or well, it's hard to find exactly in the literature, but this is one way it's defined. Any action an individual directs at him or herself, so something they're using to control themselves, so as to change his or her own behavior from what they might otherwise do, in order to change the likelihood of a future consequence or an attainment of goal. So basically, it's how do you manage your own, how do you control your own behavior? The opposite of this is impulsivity. It's doing without thinking. And that, if you understand that one idea is that that impulsivity is what is really for most kids with ADHD, that's the problem. They do before they think. And the long-term consequences, all the punishments they get or the rewards they might get for doing something different, don't, they don't entertain it in their mind before they call it in class, before they hit their brother, before they um, you know, drive drunk. So if we can understand that basic idea of impulsivity and think how it's applied to all those other areas that Dr. Hirsch just described, so what's impulsivity? So again, the three major areas that we use for diagnostic purposes are inattention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity. So impulsivity, okay, that's the same thing. Cutting people in line, not waiting your turn in a game. Those are little kid pictures. And as you, as you can imagine, growing older, impulsivity has much larger consequences. Hyperactivity. Hyperactivity is just impulsivity of movement. I'm supposed to be sitting in class. I'm supposed to be sitting in shul. I feel really restless, I want to go, I pop up before I think, oh, the teacher's going to yell at me if I get up in the middle of class. And attention, kids with ADHD pay attention very, very well. They don't, it's not, they don't have difficulty with attention. The problem is they can't regulate their attention. What they do is their mind immediately goes to the most interesting thing in the environment, right? Doing their homework, which is dull and boring and probably hard, and all of a sudden they hear a siren outside classic example. 
oh, what's a siren? What's going on outside? And all of a sudden, their attention is drawn away. They're actually honed in on the most interesting stimulus in the environment. It's just not the stimulus that they're supposed to be regulating to pay attention to. So that's the problem. It's not that inattention. It's regulation of attention. And we will direct their attention. By the way, when you do studies of these kids around things that they enjoy, often involving electronics, by the way, video games or TV, or even Legos, or even something else that they're really reading, if they happen to be passionate about it, these kids can pay attention for longer and more deeply than the average kid can. It's that the difference in attention, you know, we all pay attention to things. You know, if you were really interested in the depression talk earlier, you were paying attention over here. If you're only mildly interested in what Dr. Schneider is saying, your attention's over here. Um, and that's okay, I forgive you. It's also, you know, it's all, all after 12 and you haven't had lunch yet. Um, for kids with ADHD, the difference is like this. Again, they're paying better attention to the talk that they're interested in. And oh my God, that boring, oh my, God, they're just droning on about ADHD. I can't even, I'm totally checked out checking my email. Um, so it's that differential. And that's why you have parents coming in saying, but my child doesn't have trouble with attention. You should see him playing video games. And I'd say, exactly. It's the difference between video games and homework. It's not that they pay attention to video games. So given that basic idea, um, so let's just talk about this from a psychological perspective. So this is, how I, this is how I think about it when I work in clinical practice. Triggers happen all day long. This could be, uh, uh, one example here is um, someone calls a kid a name. Right? This happens in school all the time. Call it a name, you get a feeling. That reaction's automatic. Feelings are not good or bad, they're just your emotional, motivational reaction. And it involves both how your body feels and the kind of cognitive thoughts that you put on top of it. So, um, he calls you a name, you get angry. Right? And impulsivity dictates that basically that feeling leads to an action. That action, it's going too fast. That action may be hitting the kid, maybe calling them a name back. Maybe screaming, maybe something that's... And then in the end, there's some negative consequence that's not going to work out for you. But if we were animals without a prefrontal cortex, we would just follow our instincts. And that's essentially what that model does. Most of the time, our instincts actually work quite well. And we have to be fast. You know, all of a sudden, we touch something hot, and we have the feeling, ooh, that hurts, and we pull it away. That's good. So this is very helpful. You know, we walk outside, and it's late at night, we're feeling it's really dangerous, and we, you know, we go somewhere safe or find someone else to be with, that's a good use of our feelings and our instincts. The problem is it doesn't always work. And in a society where so much of our world is about long-term consequences as opposed to short-term consequences, getting all the way into YU and getting through college, as opposed to right now I really want to eat that donut, or right now I really want to you know, roll around with my brother while I should be doing my homework, that's a much more difficult thing to do. So self-regulation is this ability to manage the feeling, manage, and then interrupt that action and say, wait, I'm actually going to think about this. What's my response? The kid called me a name. I'm feeling angry. I'm going to lower my anger a little bit using, you know, the strategies actually aren't even that interesting. You can teach them. Kids don't use them until they're actually motivated. It's a whole other problem. But interrupting the action, that's the most important thing so that you can then figure out, well, what's a more positive action? Hmm, they called me a name. Well, I could ignore it. I could turn it into a joke. I could hang out with my friends. I could tell a teacher. There are many other things they might do with that problem. Um, so here's where the genetics and the environment, I think, really intersect. Um, ADHD is incredibly heritable. It's in, uh, the, when they've done studies on it, you know, people think, oh, it's just the environment, it's just the parenting. Actually, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe the studies are um, that the heritability quotient, which is like how, how much genetics influence the acquisition of the disorder, 
are higher than things like schizophrenia and depression, and they're lower only than things like height. Height is incredibly heritable from your parents. So it's actually quite heritable, but here's where I think psychology and environment also take a role. The extent that we're teaching our kids to self-regulate, and frankly, not teaching them, forcing them to self-regulate, it's the extent that they build up that muscle of self-regulation. So let me give you just one simple example of how, we, of, of how the environment here, and I think we're going to come back to the dilemmas at the end, how our environment changes this whole thing from happening. And this happens across attentional, um, across anxiety, across depression, a lot of different areas. So he told, a, Dr. Kirsch told a story about coming home from school yesterday. I'll tell a story from coming home from school yesterday. Um, my daughter had arranged to have a, her eight-year-old friend come over for a play date. Um, but we were at a bar mitzvah. We couldn't do it right away. We said, okay, come, come later in the afternoon. My wife and I are walking home, and we realize we're passing the house that this girl is in. She's, very, she's been to our house a hundred times. Her parents are good friends. We stop into the house, say, you know, we can just walk her home. Why do you have to walk back and forth? You know, we'll walk her home. Sure, oh yeah, no problem. We talk to the girl, and the girl says, oh yeah, I really want to go and play with my daughter, um, but, but I want my parents to come with me for the walk. Now, this eight-year-old's been with us a hundred times. She's slept over in our house. She's not usually there with, she's there with our parents, and now there with our parents. So the parent had a choice at that moment. Do they say, okay, I'll walk with you, and I will leave the lunch that I'm at with all of my friends, and kind of like, you know, deal with this little piece of anxiety this kid was having, or do I give this girl a choice? The choice is, it's up to you. I'm staying at lunch. I'm having a great time with my friends. If you'd really like to go play with your friend at the Schwab's house, go with the parents. You know them very well. Um, otherwise, stay with me. And that's a moment of, hmm, my, my, the negative action of like, I want that comfort of my parents by me. I'm not going to get it. So I have to make a choice. Is the motivation of going to my friend bigger? Or is the motivation of being comforted about my anxiety bigger? The parent, unfortunately, made a different choice, and, and this is the problem. This is an ambiguous situation. Was it a big deal that she walked with her daughter? No. Did we enjoy spending a couple hours hanging out with our friend once she arrived at her house? Of course we did. But that was a moment of, as a parent, and this is, and this is from her whole society's worrying about how happy our children are from moment to moment, that we're really concerned with how our kids feel, and this is something that was alluded to by Dr. Pelkovitz um, and by some of the other panelists, to the extent that we're concerned moment to moment that our kids feel okay and good and good about themselves, then we are really focusing on their moment to moment enjoyment and happiness. What we are depriving them of is the resilience of the self-regulation of feeling uncomfortable. This girl had an opportunity to feel either uncomfortable because she chose not to go, or to feel uncomfortable she walked with us. This is an eight-year-old problem. This is a little problem. Good. Let her feel a tiny bit uncomfortable so that she can then have the resilience to go independently the next time. Um, and I think that that's the intersection here of the environment, is that this is so incredibly pervasive in our parenting, in our schools. We're so protective of bubble wrapping of our kids, lest they should feel badly, that we're not building up any requirement of self-regulation. Um, so just a couple more slides, and I'm going to hand over to Dr. Hirsch again, so time is limited. But uh, another way to put this is the developmental disorder of self-regulation. Um, again, this impulse control is the main issue. That stopping function. Wait. He called me a name, but I know if I hit him, I'll get in trouble. What should I do? If that ability to stop, you know, what kids will say is like, well, he hit me, so he called me a name, so I hit him, like, before they even realize it. So it's stopping that impulsive moment. Um, and delay of gratification. There are um, tremendous studies by Walter Michelle and many others about the ability to delay gratification over time to say, oh, I'm not going to eat that marshmallow. It's a classic four-year-old study. I'm going to wait. 
that predicts SAT scores, success professionally, all these other things when they get older. Um, starts with that little moment of impulsivity. Resistance to distraction, sustained attention is all the same thing. Um, and regulation, regulating their activity level, as I described. These kids are smart. It's not that they don't know that these consequences will happen, it's that they have trouble performing it in the moment. We may have reminded them a hundred times, they may have gotten in trouble a hundred times. It's very, very hard for them to remember to perform it at that moment because it is so quick and impulsive. And that's where the psychology of it gets very hard. That's where the behavioral treatments really fall apart is because unlike anxiety where kids are moving very slowly and we can help them to work differently, this happens so incredibly quickly there's not a lot of thinking involved. And so we as psychologists have trouble intervening. So these effects, one of the, main, one of the things you'll see, I'll look at the time here to make sure I'm not taking too much of our time, is time blindness. You see this, um, this gradient of reinforcement that's different. Right? If I offer you a cookie and I say, I'll give you, you really want a cookie. I say, I'll give you a cookie now. Um, but if you wait an hour, you get two. Well, all right, I might wait an hour. I like two cookies. Um, but I'll give you a cookie now or wait a year for two cookies. You're like, oh, forget it. I don't want to wait a year. I'll give me a cookie now. Um, this is actually based on some work done at the Child Study Center um, that the kids with ADHD, that gradient of like how long they're willing to wait is much, much shorter. It's they're living in the moment. Everything else, five minutes, two days, one year is all far in the future. At this moment, I really want to watch TV. At this moment, I really want that cookie. At this moment, this is what I want. And without being able to put themselves in their future self, five or 10 minutes, even later. Um, I'm going to skip through some of these. Is there, I'm happy if you want to email. Um, difficulties regulating emotions. This used to be part of the DSM. It fell out. But because of this impulsivity, there's a lot of impulsive emotions, both up and down. Um, Maybe if you read Calvin Hobbes, you might have been able to diagnose him. Um, I did not do a clinical study on him, but you know, this is someone with a dysregulation of emotion, both up and down. Um, they're less flexible in problem solving, and there's a lot of variability. This is one of the crazy things about it. Parents or teachers say, but they did it yesterday. They, they did a good job yesterday. They should be able to do it today. No. One of the main things happening to ADHD is that variability day to day, and you don't know why. Um, and what, what shows that they can't do it consistently means that they don't have that skill. Um, treatment quickly. Educating advocacy. We're starting that now. Just telling a kid, look, this is what you're struggling with. This is what it is. This is what you have to do to deal with it. It's incredibly empowering. Um, medication treatment, which I'm going to hand over to, doc, to uh, Dr. Hirsch in a moment, is the most potent and effective. We've done many, many studies on this. Behavioral treatments are very effective for anxiety, for depression, for oppositional behavior. They are not particularly effective for the core symptoms of ADHD. They're just not. Um, and for better or for worse, medications are far, far more effective than, uh, for ADHD than for most other things. And they tend to have relatively low side effect profiles. So even as a psychologist who does not prescribe medication, it has to be considered. Um, there are pros and cons. There are behavioral interventions that help to support around the core symptoms that school functioning, home functioning is better. Organizational skills treatment, which actually was, again, actually developed at the Child Safe Center, has found great um, benefits. Kids with ADHD tend to be very disorganized. Organizational skills training has found great effects very re in recent studies um, for kids to really build that skill. Social skills training is a little bit on shakier ground, but we think that if performed in the school and, and we help them with generalization, it's helpful, but these treatments don't cure, they simply manage. So let me just... There's not much evidence for all of these, and these are very popular. Everything from uh, special diets, to play therapy, to vision training, sensory integration training, even neurofeedback, cognitive, 
maybe something. We're hopeful. But there's not a lot of evidence at this point to really support it compared to the other stuff. So a couple, I'm going to skip this actually. Um, let me just show you a couple of examples of um, how we do this behaviorally in terms of managing kids. Um, one is that, you know, this is one kind of behavior chart we've used, that I've used. Basically, it breaks down the day into small pieces. Because kids at HG, you can't give them feedback at the end of the day. They need frequent feedback. That, that inattention or that impulsivity is happening all day long. So faith, you know, it's very clear, positive, yes, no. Um, and kids really, often, if it's presented the right way as a tool, they feel very positively about it. Um, but this is a little bit of a crazier one, which I, so this was done when I was at previous school. There was a kid who clearly had ADHD, was really struggling to pay attention and manage themselves in class, and the parents were just not interested in medication. So I thought, well, let's track this child's attention so the parent can see how, much, how difficult it is, and maybe we can convince them to reconsider. Um, what I didn't realize is that this was an effective intervention, and it actually worked, and this child actually never went on medication. And for a subset, not all, of the kids with ADHD I see in schools, this actually works enough. So what, what it basically is, is they're sitting in class, and they're in skills class, and the teacher comes out in random intervals. It's a random, uh, for those of you who took psychology, it's a, it's a uh, variable interval schedule. And they come around, and if they're on task, they get a check in the top, and they dot, and they get if they're not paying attention. And you come around a few times during class, and it's a bar graph. The goal is to get more checks than dots by the end of class. Simple, private, relatively private, and quiet. I cannot tell you how many dozens of kids in, in an otherwise very supportive school setting, because this guy things I'm in are very structured, um, this has actually managed the ADHD enough that medication was either not necessary or potentially they had took less of it. Again, this is not for everybody. I just yesterday heard from, from teachers or Friday that there's a kid that's doing this, that this is not effective, and so we, take, we don't do it. But um, this is potentially a way for them to self-monitor and to get that consistent, constant, frequent reinforcement in order to pay good attention. So I'm going to turn back, turn back over to Dr. Hirsch to talk about medical treatment. Thank you. So medical treatment and we're talking about a medication, a new medication that are called stimulants, is actually not new. It's relatively old. In fact, it's one of the oldest medicines that we have for all childhood illnesses. Um, uh, the medicine called Benzedrine, which is an amphetamine derivative, was first developed in the 1930s. It was a way of looking for a treatment for asthma um, because these are medicines that can help improve uh, airflow into the lungs. And in 1937, uh, Benzedrine was developed. And one of the first treatments was done by a guy named Charles Rodden, who gave this to a group of students in a residential therapeutic school for kids with disruptive problems. To see a single daily dose of Benzedrine produce a great improvement in school performance in the combined efforts of a people staff working in a most favorable setting would have been all but demoralizing to the teachers had not the improvement been so gratifying and practical So this is before antibiotics. So what does medicine improve? As Dr. Schwab said, the core symptoms are not helped 
by uh, behavioral work. So that impulsivity, that distractibility, the hyperactivity, that's what medicine can be helpful with. It helps academic accuracy. It helps relationships and social relationships. It reduces aggression um, and reduces antisocial behaviors, such as stealing. It doesn't help learning difficulties. It doesn't help dyslexia. It doesn't help math problems if it's an underlying learning problem. It doesn't help organizational skills. That's why we have organizational skills therapy. It doesn't promote social skills for kids who don't know how to use their social abilities. And there's no evidence that it really helps long-term academic outcomes. So medicines have an important role, but it is not a panacea. And that's why it's a combination of what do we do family, what do we do in the school, what role medicine has to play, what role individual therapy has to play. So just to give you some numbers, the prevalence in school-aged children is about 7 to 8%. Um, although recent CDC surveys have suggested it's up to 11%. Now, we can decide whether that's a lot or a little um, to give you a, a sense of things. Childhood asthma is 8%. Uh, hypertension is about 29%. So these are um, important numbers, but you can't look at them in a vacuum. About 50% of children will go on to have the symptoms that are disabling to them in adulthood. Another 40% or so will really have a real attenuation of symptoms and will often not require treatment. The gender ratio is important. Here again is where boys are the weaker sex. Um, when we look at the combined type of hyperactive, impulsive, and inattentive, boys have four to one ratio. When we look at just the inattentive, the kind of space cadet kind of kid, um, boys are at a two to one ratio. And that's one of the reasons why girls are not as diagnosed as frequently uh, one, because they get it less frequently, but also it's not easily recognized girl, because girls tend to have more inattentive type. Um, so the question are, are too many getting diagnosed? But there's another question of too many getting medication. Mark can see this, but one says, the story, honey, wouldn't you rather have a mild sedative? As bedtime approaches. Um, we talked about the CDC survey. We talked about how um, it's risen from about 7.8% in uh, 2003 to 11% in 2011. Now this is a different kind of survey than the kind of evaluation that looked at prevalence um, when I talked about the 8%. Because these asked parents, has your child ever been diagnosed? And it's interesting, when we look at epilepsy and we look at medical records and we ask people the same kind of question, they actually have a doubling in the prevalence rate when we just ask people if they can recall. But here's an important component here. This is the, the CDC survey, and what you see it is in green, current ADHD diagnosis and taking medicine. In the uh, reddish color, current ADHD diagnosis but not taking medicine. So close to 20% of kids who, and this is school-aged kids, who have been diagnosed with a disabling disorder, I'm not taking medicine. So uh, I think the issue really isn't, as far as I can tell, that in general there's an over-treatment here. I have one last slide, and that is 
Um, what we know about medicines like Ritalin and Adderall is they can be abused. And that's why there are very clear controls in all countries to make sure that they're not abused. But it's not unheard of for a friend to hand another friend. Um, it's before the big chem test. <coughs> a little Adderall may help you kind of focus and stay up. So are stimulants smart pills? Are they neuroenhancers? Are they uh, cognitive enhancers? And what's interesting is, um, and again, you can't see it, but this is a study looking at healthy adults without ADHD, um, giving them a double-blind way, either a sugar pill or Adderall, which is one of the stimulants, and then a couple of days later, doing the reverse and giving them a series of psychological tests and academic achievement scores, and lo and behold, there's no difference whatsoever. The only difference is the people on the stimulant were much more confident they did better um, than when they were off the stimulant. And this replicates a study that was done back in World War II when stimulants were used for bombardiers um, to uh, get them to be more accurate in their bombing of, of uh, places, and it turned out that the bombardiers that took stimulants were very clear that they were much more accurate and did a better job at bombing the sites they needed to, to, to uh, uh, bomb. It turns out they were no more accurate than those who didn't take the medicine, but what they were was much more confident. Um, and so this appears to help be more alert. Keep up at night if you want to focus, um, you know, study all night. Probably no different than a cup of coffee. Um, uh, but what if they were, and that's a question I'd like to leave you with uh, as well, and that is, what if we had the true smart pill? By the way, you want to know the best neural enhancer we have that has been replicated time and time again? You learn the most if you sleep well. Um, so keep that in mind. But the question is, if I can give you a smart pill, why not? You know? Um, and this, you know, this cuts to the core of our society, right? We've got Barry Bonds who takes steroids. Why not? Um, and these are real issues because I think the why not is one, um, it's cheating. Um, two, it's um, uh, potentially dangerous. Um, and uh, three, it's not clear who does it. So I'm going to stop here, and uh, I think we have time for questions. Deciding whether 
Some sort of neuropsychological testing is needed to rule out learning dis disorders um, and any number of things. So we really want, this is not a 15 minute exam. Just wondered about your thoughts about how do we allow for self-regulation in children when, as speaking for myself perhaps, but maybe for many others, when parents don't necessarily want their children exposed to uncomfortable situations, and we want them to grow from that self-regulation environment. How do we manage that when parents are very protective of their children in uncomfortable situations? Um. How do I respond to this by saying, uh, tough luck. I think that we all have to, I think that the first part of parenting, a very wise person said, I don't, I don't know who it was, but um, children learn more from what we do than from all of our words combined. Um, and to the extent that we are models, that we're dugma ishit, shall, you know, for that, uh, an ability to manage ourselves in uncomfortable situations, to admit to our children that we're feeling sad when something sad happens, we're feeling angry when something angry happens, but still able to self-regulate and be with that emotion and not run away and watch TV or avoid or drink or do something else to blunt the emotion, um, we are starting to uh, model for them that that's something that is part of life. You know, one of the, the talk that really struck me about this topic was at a conference of the Association of Behavioral and Cognitive Therapists, the, C, the big CBT conference. Um, and uh, the example was the Holocaust. And what he said was, you know, we, we think all the time that we're supposed to try to be happy. You know, it's written right into our Declaration of Independence that we are this pursuit of happiness. He said, but look at the Holocaust. And this was, again, this was not a Jewish audience. There were Jews in the audience, but it was a general audience. And he said, think about the Holocaust for a moment. If you sit down and study it, if you study the Shoah, you're probably going to feel sad. And what does it say about you if you don't feel sad? You know, when you feel sad, you care. It means you think this was a terrible thing. It means that you maybe prevent it from happening again. That emotion is core to being human. And to build a society around running away from those emotions and going on trips and watching television and drinking alcohol and doing many other things to blunt and avoid emotion and protecting our kids from emotion is to blunt their humanity. And it's also to, you know, the little, all the little happinesses that we're doing in that way. Not, I'm not suggesting we intentionally make our children unhappy, certainly not. And a certain amount of love and caring in a warm environment is core to growing up as a, as a healthy human being. But to the extent that we're protecting them from age-appropriate, you know, matter-of-fact, things that happen every day, frustrations, in the hopes that they are going to be happier adults, is actually we're doing the opposite. We are, every time we prevent them from, you know, the fifth grader who finally has tests, who didn't study, and is going to go in and feel, ooh, I didn't study. It feels really bad not to study, because um, I do really badly. That's an age-appropriate fifth grade thing to happen. Let them, let them hang themselves a little bit. You know, do we want them to, like, you know, find a firearm and what accident? No. They're not going to find a, we don't want them to do something that's going to damage them that's not age appropriate. But we have to find where's that line developmentally where they're ready to take this on. The concept, uh, Vygotsky, who's a famous uh, psych, uh, psychologist in Russia, called it um, the zone of proximal development, which is that there's a certain amount of, you know, certain amount of something, anything that we've learned that we can do pretty solidly. 
And there's another line up here above which we can't do it. Like, it's too hard. There's a zone in the middle where with a push and with some effort we can learn to do it. And then our zone continues to rise. And for resilience, the same is true. We're trying to help our kids to confront the natural, constant, you know, life is full of challenges. You know, as a kid, we're all told, oh, it's, you're working so hard in school, it's going to be great as an adult. Life, adults, is hard. And we need to prepare our kids for the, all the, you know, the, the adversity of their life. So we need to find age-appropriate developmental adversity for them to face and not for them to escape from. They, we can support them, we can suggest things, but that they can face that adversity so they continue to build that resilience. Sorry, that's my bully pulpit. What do you suggest for parents and teachers uh, who are faced with kids who have ADHD after a diagnosis is made before medication has been regulated as the best they take? Sure. Let me do it. Um, so the studies are pretty clear that, again, medication is far more effective for the core diagnosis of ADHD than is behavioral treatment or anything else. That being said, the best practices generally for the vast majority of kids with ADHD is both. You want to be looking at all of those domains because this is literally impacting them everywhere. You want to be looking at behavioral domain, you want to be looking at social, you want to be looking at school. So in the meantime, you're trying to figure out what accommodations, what structures, what, what behavioral systems are going to help to keep this kid contained. So, I mean, the example I showed was of that behavior chart where in a classroom setting, a teacher can have you know, that behavior chart on their desk and just, you know, check it off. Help the kid to be more self-monitoring. And for some kids, that'll help somewhat. It may not completely solve the problem, but it's helpful. Um, uh, looking to see if there's a learning disability. The overlap between ADHD and learning disabilities is very high. And so kids may be struggling in school. It's this vicious cycle, right? You don't pay attention to what you don't like. And you don't like what you're not good at. So when you're in school and you have a learning disability and you have some ADHD, you stop paying attention because it's hard, and so you learn less, so it gets harder, so you stop paying attention, it's this vicious cycle. So what can we do to intervene about the learning disability, just as an example? So I'd look at, and again, socially similarly, the impulsivity of ADHD and the difficulty with managing what they're attending to can make the social in, in impacts difficult. So start working with that kid, give them explicit ideas of how they can manage socially better. Just a few things, again, in every domain of a kid's life you have to think about. Uh, thank you very much. I'm sorry that we are out of time. I'm sure that Dr. Schwab and Dr. Schwab